Welcome. We trust you will be encouraged by this message from Mahesh and Bonnie Chavda, presented by Chavda Ministries International. Real love, real people, real power. So this morning, um, there is healing and there is deliverance. And we have a word of knowledge from one of our intercessors that God is delivering someone right now from a spirit of heaviness and disappointment. So whatever that event is that has occurred, we send the renewal of God in the realm of the spirit for you, for everyone in Jesus' name. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So this morning, as we move towards the Passover season and um, coming up is Holy Saturday, um, in the context of the events of the crucifixion and burial of Christ and his appearing in a body, an eternal body, a body that had then overcome the mortal enemy, death, appearing in his body on the earth. Those three days in between and in the middle of that, what is celebrated by the church tradition as Holy Saturday. The line from the creed is he descended into hell. The word hell in our thinking probably automatically goes to that place of eternal damnation and fiery judgment and punishment, all of that kind of thing. But there is a a difference in the way that this realm is spoken of in the New Testament. It speaks both of Gehenna, of Sheol, that is the place of the dead, um, and uh, paradise, which Jesus said to the thief uh, beside him on the cross who repented in that moment. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's an amazing thing because in his dying, Christ was referencing his future, a living future in which he would be with in person. Someone whose iniquity was being dealt with in that moment and who would have an eternal future with Christ. Today with you will be with me in paradise. So he descended into hell, Gehenna, Sheol, the place of the dead, Hades, and then, of course, the fearful judgment, if you will, of God against sin that is, has not been covered by the blood of Jesus. Remember that the Apostles' Creed came into the church as the baptismal confessional. It does not inform scripture, but rather it professes what the biblical material says to us. And in Revelation 1:18, Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands in the midst of the church, appearing to John, as the risen, resurrected, reigning king of glory. He says in, John, in Revelation 1:18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And it suggests a continuum, a sequence of events that he died, and was made alive 
And in that being made alive, he has come up possessing something in specific, indicating prior to those events, he didn't possess those keys, the keys of hell and death. But through those events, he captured, he took, and has become then the Lord of the underworld, the Lord of earth, and the Lord of heaven, the Lord of life, and the Lord over death. So this line in the creed, he descended into hell, sits right in the middle of our living hope. It suggests that before he rose, someone else had those keys. He descended into death and was there for three days and did certain things, one of which was to combat the supernatural enemies of death and hell and take the keys from their domain. And New Testament scripture is filled with language and words and preaching and exhortation to that effect. That he is, has been raised far above all principality and power. It, it uh, goes beyond Jesus' initial encounter, confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. Where it is apparent that Satan had been given tremendous power, tremendous domain in the earth and concerning life and death. And Jesus, as an obedient son, resists the temptation, uh, refuses the opportunity to be given by Satan the glories of this world and the domain thereof and all of those things. And this line in the creed is bringing all of that New Testament revelation, the revelation of Jesus and what he has done and how the apostles, the eyewitnesses understood that work in reference to Jesus conquering every supernatural enemy. So the creed brings this all um, into possession, if you will, uh, in this line. He rose, and now he is Lord of the living and dead, and now he holds the power of life and death. This belief was embraced by the confessing church. And you remember the creed was the baptismal confession. So new converts, people coming out of pagan religion or no faith whatsoever this was what they learned this was what they were taught and the baptism itself was understood as a number of things one literally entering into death in Christ and coming up again having conquered death through Christ in the baptism in uh, in, in in the act of baptism and this belief that he descended into hell, was embraced by the confessing church around the world until the late 1400s and early 1500s. And that's important because in modern times, in many church uh, liturgies and denominations, they have removed this line because people have found it hard to deal with. And theologies have evolved, new ones have evolved um, since the days of just pre-reformation uh, and and have evolved and devolved uh, the protestant uh, denominations kind of going in one direction and then finally some of them actually removing this line because they couldn't uh, successfully eviscerate it <laughs> and it was difficult and so it just was taken out of the way but we find it i find it 
absolutely important and specifically because it is in reference to the reality of spiritual warfare. And the New Testament, the early church believers uh, coming from the ancient Jewish uh, traditions and theologies through the Old Testament had a much clearer grasp on the spiritual realm. And their theology, their belief about angels and demons and God's working in that dynamic and the conflict with uh, the human race, all of those things was much more developed. And so there are aspects of that that are in our New Testament, but they're almost taken for granted. And this uh, event is, is one of those things. But the early church, the first century church, the church fathers were clearer on these events than the modern church. And, and that has been something that's kind of taken place since the Reformation period. Um, not that Jesus went to hell and suffered. However, that theology has later had its evolution. Uh, in the Catholic Church, for instance, there is a theology developed around suffering from this particular aspect of the creed that in, in a positive way gives believers uh, a kind of place to have a personal communion, if you will, in Christ's suffering. Um, but it has also lent itself to the theologies of various levels of limbo, of purgatory, and some things like that, which were not um, held by the apostles and the early church. As I said, these um, theologies began to develop. And one of the things that you can see is that in the um, uh, iconography, the frescoes, the paintings, the uh, altarpieces, the various icons that began to be developed in the church um, after the first and second centuries, that the uh, depictions of this particular piece of the creed began to reflect evolving theologies. And then, because those depictions were so present in the worship spaces, the depictions began to influence the theology. And we'll see that in uh, just a moment with a couple of the things that I've pulled for you to look at. So he went into the underworld, the realm where the dead go, and it says in 1 Peter that there he preached to spirits. And as I said, some of the modern traditions have had this line removed and um, in that have lost a significant profession and theological revelation for us, uh, for our understanding of what, what Christ has done. So um, in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, um, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to spirits in prison. And this is one of the areas where theology began to struggle. And it was, well, who did he, was it the spirits of the human beings? And, or was it um, demonic spirits that were disobedient? 
uh, in the fall and then afterwards mentioned it, bringing, talking all about Noah here and the, the days of the flood. He says, to spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So Peter is actually speaking now of the baptism in water and that whole dynamic to the church, but he's bringing in um, the aspects that end up giving us this line in the creed um, concerning the descent uh, into hell or in, into Sheol. It says, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype. An antitype is something that is foreshadowed or identified with an earlier symbol or type. Um, oftentimes the New Testament has antitypes. Old Testament has antitypes of New Testament realities. Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, he, the, first, the, the second man. So um, Adam becomes that pre-shadow of the realities of Jesus. Um, Peter uses Enoch here um, like Jude does. And um, there were a number of books, apocryphal books, that were written after the New Testament witness. And as we know, in the councils of the churches, through the influence of the church fathers, there are certain things that we've been given as the canon of Scripture that are irrefutable the truth, the foundations of our faith. There were additional writings that the first century church was familiar with. And you see particularly the book of Enoch is something that is referenced by Peter and also by Jude. Um, uh, in fact, Jude in verse 6, I wrote it here he's it's the place where he's referring to um here it is angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for the great judgment day and that particular uh uh phrase and that those images are specifically like peter is using from the book of Enoch. And the, the understanding was that those disobedient, they were called the sons of God. They have cohabited with women. The story is told there in the, the flood narrative of Noah. And it was the, under, the understanding that those spirits that had had so much power and influence and um, traffic on earth were disobedient beyond disobedience. And they particularly were taken by God and put into everlasting chains. And one of the aspects referring to uh, this, the imagery in the book of Enoch is that Jesus went and declared to them that when he appeared there, it was essentially saying, I'm dead. That's why I'm in this realm. And I want you to know that I have come because... Through my cross, I have broken the power of this realm, and I have come to take the keys. But I want you to know you guys failed. 
the plan you had to prevent and disrupt God's redemption has failed. And I will not be held here. I'm leaving. And when I leave, I'm taking with me the keys and everything that would otherwise condemn the human race to this place of death forever and also to eternal judgment. So it, it involves the uh, understanding of the uh, substitutionary, the penalty being paid by Christ in this phrase about descending into hell. And this was why the early church put this line into the creed. Um, Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So both Jude and Peter are using this imagery. Also in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4, speaking of Christ's descent and ascent, Philippians 2, Christ's descent and ascent, all of these scriptures are referring to this work that occurred in the death in the descending of Jesus into the underworld of taking those keys and, and then his, his um, rising up, his ascending all the way to the highest height and being seated there, he's got one more trip to make. And that is he is coming again. He is coming again. And so indeed, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So to these offending spirits, the offending sons of God, Jesus, in his death, shows himself, declaring they will be kept until judgment, and they and their colleagues have failed their attempt to disrupt God's redemption plan. And while Christ will not remain in Hades, those spirits are doomed for destruction. Now, we can also think about the habitation of the place of the dead and the, pair, the story in the New Testament about Abraham's bosom. And there appearing to be these two sections, if you will. One for righteousness and one for unrighteousness. But at that time, no salvation had been made. And so we understand that, that realm, the realm of the dead, not particularly the realm of eternal punishment, but the place where the dead were waiting, when Jesus came, then we can assume or entertain the fact that they also saw the Messiah that they were looking forward to. And uh, in fact, one of the, the paintings that I found a modern painting, if you will, much, much more uh, late than the original um, iconography, uh, actually depicts Jesus coming into the realm of the dead where all of the spirits of the righteous are waiting for the Messiah and he comes in in light and he's actually carrying his cross. We'll look at that in, in just a minute. So... Jesus uses the images from the book of Enoch. And, but as I said, the early church understood this. And so this line is in the creed. Um, in Luke 23, where the thief on the cross 
uh, speaks to Jesus. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Christ, in remaining dead for three days, experienced death as all humans do. So the understanding is that just as he was fully man and fully God in his incarnation on the earth, when he died, he experienced death as all humans do. And he also was was alive, if you will. Death doesn't end existence, is the best way that I can put it. Death does not end existence. And so Jesus was there for three days in that state, just as any human being would be. But because... As the spotless lamb, he had borne the penalty for judgment. The wages of sin is death. Because he had borne that, death would not be able to hold him. So he was doing things for that three days. His body remained in the grave. His soul remained in the place of the dead. But he didn't suffer there. He was present. He proclaimed the victory achieved by his penal substitutionary death. To all those in the place of dead, the dead, the fallen angels, unrighteous dead, the Old Testament saints, his descent is thus primarily the beginning of his exaltation. And that's where Philippians 2 comes in. It's so beautiful of the seven ways that he humbled himself completely all the way to death, even death on a cross. And then it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. His presence changes the nature of paradise from expectation for the coming Messiah to the reality that he is present. And thus the early church describes the descent as release from Sheol, particularly and only the righteous compartment paradise. Christ's declaration of victory is good news for those who awaited his coming and a sign of judgment for those who rebelled against him. Remember, the creeds were established early as the confessions of faith for baptismal candidates, new Christians, converts from paganism, to combat and to combat various heresies that began to arise um, after the eyewitnesses. In latter times, all the way up to modernity, theologies have developed in Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant reform, adopting ideas the early fathers and eyewitnesses didn't necessarily hold. They include controversies over purgatory, sorry, universal salvation for everyone, even Satan. And so it's important that you know from Scripture what you believe and why we profess our faith in the creed as we do. For the apostles, the early church, for us, our house, we hold the ancient doctrines as first delivered. And as first delivered, he descended into hell. Ephesians 4, he who descended also ascended. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly region? So once again, we see the reflection of what the early church believed about this work that was done in the realm of the, uh, of, in the underworld after the crucifixion. 
It's interesting in Matthew 27 where um, the event of the crucifixion takes place and Matthew records in there like bringing time together in the fold of an envelope. He says that when the veil of the temple was rent, rocks split, there was a great earthquake and tombs were open. And then he says, and many who were dead came out of their tomb and went in to the city and appeared to many. And that is another one of those places. Matthew is the only one that records it, but, but it seems that he's speaking of a bringing together afterwards of these two events, that the cross broke the power of death. And then in Jesus' resurrection, the bodies of some of those who were dead literally came up with him. Um, the church fathers from the first century through the time of the Reformation attested to that event. Ignatius affirmed clearly the literal historical nature of the resurrection of these saints. He said, for says the scripture, many bodies of the saints that slept arose, their graves being opened. He descended indeed into Hades alone, but he arose accompanied by a multitude. Ignatius also wrote, Therefore, endure, that we may, be found, we may be found the disciples of Jesus Christ, our only master. How shall we be able to live apart from him whose disciples, the prophets themselves, in the spirit did wait for him as their teacher? And therefore, he who they rightly waited for, being come, raised them from the dead. Arrhenius also closely linked the New Testament writers. He knew Polycarp, uh, closely linked to the New Testament writers. He knew Polycarp, who was the disciple of the Apostle John. Arrhenius wrote, he, Christ, suffered, who can, who can lead those souls aloft that followed his ascension. And they're referring again to Matthew's record in Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 27. This event was also an indication of the fact that when the holy hour of Christ, when, when, that when the holy hour of Christ descended to Hades, many souls ascended and were seen in their bodies. So, praise the Lord. Um, four important points in the saying, he descended into hell. Jesus really died. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Acts 2.27. It's a quote from Psalm 16. For you will not leave my soul in Hades or Sheol, the abode of the souls of the dead, not the torment of hell. This is Jesus, uh, the Spirit of Christ, prophesying through David in advance. Um, Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So by both Paul and Peter, it is the confident and dogmatic promise of God's resurrection of Israel's Messiah from the grave so quickly after his real death that no decomposition or corruption whatever would destroy his body. The same body that fully died and resurrected still bore the marks of his crucifixion. If you remember, when he came into the upper room and he showed himself to Thomas, he said, look, Thomas, look at my side. See where they stuck the spear in me? Look at, look at my hands where they nailed me to the cross. See my feet. Um, also, the referral by the early church, Paul, you remember, absent from the body, present with the Lord. 
that saints in the intermediate between physical death in the body and the return of the Lord are sleeping or resting, but not particularly unconscious and certainly not dead. And it's one of the reasons that in the early church, those who passed from this body weren't referred to as being dead, but as sleeping. Praise the Lord. Romans 10, 7, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He has gone before us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we also, following him, will fear no evil. He has borne the penalty of sin and endured the wrath of a just God towards man's departures from him. Number two, he descended into hell makes Jesus king. The phrase in the creed proclaims Christ's penal substitutionary victory achieved on the cross to all dead, righteous and unrighteous, and to the fallen angels. Again, 1 Peter 3 uh, opens that up. Um, this third, the last part, which I don't think I read to you out of 1 Peter 3, there is also an antitype, speaking again about baptism, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him in the understanding that when he descended, he announced himself and took the keys and now has come up with them, making him the Lord of every realm and the Lord of life, the Lord of death. As I said, Philippians 2 Starting with verse 10, it says, Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven those on earth and those under the earth. And remember we said that the, this line um, indicates a sequence of events, of going down and becoming the victorious Lord of the realm of the dead and looking forward into being the righteous judge concerning God's wrath against sin. Then he came up and he hung around on earth for more than three days. Many saw him, spoke with him, talked with him, ate with him. Those others came up with him and visited the old home place. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And then he ascended into heaven. So literally every realm now has seen him in the realm of the spirit as the victorious, glorious Lord of all. And we shall see him either when we lay down to sleep or in his coming again, whichever comes first for us. So, praise the Lord. Um, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The exaltation of Jesus in his descent, resurrection, and ascension brings those future realities into the present. Number three, Jesus is victorious. During the descent, he experiences death as all humans do. And this is why we as Christians, even when we lose loved ones, even when we hold memorial services and funerals and various things, 
even then, for us, it is a present, different reality than it is for those who have no hope because they don't have Christ or yet the revelation of him who has conquered death. Um, he experienced death as all humans do, but he does it as the God-man. One person, two natures, human and divine, remained so in his death and so defeated the power of death over the physical body and shields power to hold souls in prison as a penalty for sin. And Jesus now stands as the one with the keys to unlock death and Hades for all who receive him. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross, and has disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them in it. Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the believers. He says, I pray that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened and you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the, glor of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he's speaking definitively of the resurrection of the body which is to come and also of the foreshadowing of that in the sending of the Spirit to dwell with us and in us and be manifest, Christ manifest in the church and through the believers. The inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one which is to come. And he has put all things, say all things. All things. He has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over the church, which is his body. And so once again, the whole revelation also brings the church into its central relevance in every age where this one that has conquered hell and death is ruling and reigning over the cosmos, has invested himself in a particular peculiar people called the church. And in that, he says, the apostles say, it is the church is the only place where you can have a firm foundation and you can know the truth of all things. The church is the ground and pillar of truth. There isn't another place. Praise the Lord. And praise the Lord for his mercy in our lives that he has done this miracle of revealing himself to us and giving us the gift of faith to say yes to this great salvation. Um, number four, that Jesus is present. I was taken by the words of Psalm 68, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. Let the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. Rejoice exceedingly. And this is... Uh, what Paul quotes in Ephesians, for you have ascended on high and led captivity captive and received gifts among men. 
Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. Praise the Lord. So once again, the, the understanding, the revelation that comes to us in this simple line about descending into hell, a very important and significant reality in the whole of our salvation that established Jesus as Lord. Um, let's see. Jesus' descent changed the nature of paradise from the place where the righteous dead await the Messiah to the place where the resurrected Messiah is present with his people even in their death. That's why Paul could say, absent from the body, not ceasing to exist, not even ceasing to be conscious, present to the Lord. It's very powerful. Many of you have heard that I actually had the... Uh, unasked for privilege of physically dying twice in the um, time and event of the Lord doing the great miracle of giving us Aaron Chavda as our son. And during those months that I was exceedingly sick prior to Aaron's birth at a time when doctors said I wasn't pregnant, there was no heartbeat, there was no sign of life there, but the Lord had said, you will have a son, name him Aaron, I'm going to make his life flourish like I did Aaron's rod of old. But during that valley of shadow, when I was exceedingly sick, um, I actually died twice. And my testimony is to you, it is one breath, so to speak, to the next, one thought, so to speak, to the next. And suddenly I found myself in the presence of the Lord and all things, past, present, and future, there was no more time. Everything dwelt together in one moment in God. And in that place, I was liberated from the pain and disease that was happening in my body. At the same time, I was observing Mahesh and three children. Remember, Aaron was our fourth. Observing Mahesh and our three little children at my funeral service in our church, which was to come. And when I was in this scene, it wasn't a vision. I was in a realm experiencing the reality of what the event would be if I stayed dead, Aaron would not have been there. And I got to tell you, it wasn't, you know, this holy, fearful. I kind of almost, you know, you would think of it as almost elbowing somebody. I, I, I said to the Lord, that's a rotten thing to do to them. <laughs> and instantly I was back in my body. I guess he was like, yeah, it is. Go on back down there. And I had an event like that on two occasions. So um, I can tell you, absent from the body, it is true. Present with the Lord. And in that case, it was a blessing. But God had something else intended even for my body than death from that affliction that had overtaken us. And that was that my body would be carrying a miracle that God was going to do, i.e. the birth of our son, Aaron. Praise the Lord. So that's my testimony, and I'm sticking to it. I know when it says he descended into hell, it's indicating that he took the keys of death and hell, and he's coming up again, and we're coming up with him. So praise the Lord. 
Um, let's see. Revelation 6, uh, the fifth seal is open. This is another um, scene from Revelation of the realities, the spiritual realities, the unseen realm. Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they hailed cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to them, and the Lord said, Just a little bit longer... And he was apparently filling up his roster of those who literally would die for the faith. But we see in that moment that there is a presence of the living dead, I guess, if you want to say, of the, of the righteous who are in that realm after um, death in the mortal body, but present to the Lord. And there is uh, conversation and singing and a number of things happening there. So um, in 1 Timothy 3, it says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Speaking of the incarnation of Jesus now justified in the spirit seen by angels preached among the Gentiles believed on in the world and received up into glory um, and I think the last thing that I'll say is I, I just want us to look for a second at how theologies developed and evolved and then actually um, it, you know, were uh, began to be shown in some of the church's art, and then the art itself began to to reinform the church's theology. So there was an evolution of some things, but originally we just simply had this line: "He descended into hell," and the apostles and the early church understood what that meant. And those things are reflected in the New Testament. This is a, a fresco in the Korah Church in Istanbul from the 1300s. And it's very typical, the symbology in this one, of the evolving and developing iconography. Um, it, it has some things that are uh, really brilliant theologies and then other things that are more reflective of what began to be developed beyond what the apostles had said. But these two people, the, the man here with the long hair and beard and the woman in red, are Adam and Eve, frequently depicted in the um, Christian art concerning he descended into hell. And if you look at them, they're coming out of, of graves, out of tombs. Do you see that? They're coming out of the the um, boxes that the bones of the dead were put in back in the day. And if you look at where Jesus, Jesus has them by the wrist. It means that they were unable to save themselves. He is literally pulling them out. So that is a true and brilliant piece of our theology that is the, of the true theology that's reflected. And then you see, interestingly enough, some of the rules of doing Christian um, icons, there were certain rules. The guys with halos represent sainted ones in scripture. So the guys with halos would be Abraham, King David, King Solomon, um, perhaps you know one of the prophets. And then over here, you've got a whole a witness of persons that are seeing Christ come, the experience of, of Christ coming in there. 
And then under his feet, again, symbology that is frequently seen, these gates under here, they look like doors. That is saying he has broken the gates of hell and he's standing on top of them. And then there's an under uh, uh, realm of darkness and pictured in this realm typically would be, in addition to what we see here, is all kinds of locks, broken locks and keys and things like that. Again, indicating that he took the keys of hell and death and broke everything that would keep the human race there that um, uh, have received his salvation. Unfortunately, these are some of the ideas that began to evolve into the idea of universal salvation. That this work of Christ was so sufficient that for all, um, whether they ever bowed the knee or anything, I mean, he just did this work and ultimately there will be ultimate reconciliation of all. That is not what the Bible teaches. But um, some of the, the theologies developing um, lent itself that way. So in that realm, then, there would be sometimes depicted demons, sometimes Satan himself. What else you got up there, Ed? Oh, sorry, I was looking at the wrong place. Oh, this one is a little distorted, but you can see more clearly what I just said. There's King David, Solomon behind him up here in front. It makes it look like it's John the Baptist over there are people that are witnessing Jesus come. And again, he's um, on this side, he's pulling Adam and Eve by the wrist out of their tombs. And you can see on Jesus' hand the mark of the, of the nails there again, locks and keys and stuff down in this dark realm and the gates of hell broken under his feet in the form of a cross. Um, this one, if I remember correctly, it's 1400s, I think. A guy named Fra Angelico, I believe this. And this one is specifically, it's interesting because of the, um, the uh, crusader flag that he's carrying. And you can see again, he's broken in, he's trampling on the door into into hell he's got the nail marks in his foot there he's coming in and this one is depicting him essentially offering salvation or declaring salvation to all who were waiting for him and you see over here these guys the bad guys are in uh, agony and terror and dismay and are fleeing from his presence and then a more modern one this is the one that I told you of, which is, it's, it's really a beautiful depiction. It certainly isn't theologically sound, but it's meant to convey something, that it was through the victory of the cross that Jesus, when he entered the realm of the dead, he was carrying the victory of the cross to break that power and to free those who uh, were otherwise imprisoned there. So, in our creed, he descended into hell. And then... He begins his ascent, going up. Amen. Wow. Let's do this. Thank you. It's important that we talk about these things, that you, that you actually know what you believe, and that you think about it, and that you find yourself able to not only understand it in your own heart, but be able to say to others, what you believe and why you believe. And let me remind you, faith is a choice. God in his mercy has given us this gift to believe and believe his word. 
And once that takes hold, it only grows into clearer and clearer, solid relationship and understanding where nobody can move you. But it's important that we know what we believe and hopefully become able to then share it with others. And on this one, we're talking about having no fear of death. That's a big one. That's a big one now. It's really a big one now for the whole world. And these truths, <clears throat> it's, it's important that we hold on to the truth. But these, these, we don't want to take them for granted because a price was paid. There were a lot of different people who would ride off with a cult or a wrong perception. And so, uh, as we call it, the Apostles' Creed, it was not necessarily that one apostle wrote it down, but the, the church had to battle for some of these profound truths. For example, as Bonnie touched on, the, each of the sentences that we have shared, he was he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That's the part that she enunciated today and he descended into hell so we saw the different artists perceptions of it but this is the basic truth he descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead say the third day he rose again from the dead and so there, there have been different cults throughout the centuries especially during the initial days where some would say, oh, all this, he was a great teacher and it was just wonderful philosophy, but uh, this thing about resurrection, no, no. It, he just was a good teacher. He died, just died like everybody else. That's not true. Jesus is the captain of the armies of the living God. And uh, we see him in, uh, for example, the... In, we'll, we'll come to that. I don't want to take the, too much time, except I'm going to ask you to, to go to, we are going to go to the Message Bible. I just mentioned this, and we'll start there. But uh, here in the Message Bible, in the, uh, chapter 15, in the Message Bible of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Friends, let me go over the message with you one final time. This message, or the good news, that I proclaimed and that you made your own, this message on which you took your stand, by which your life has been saved. I'm assuming now that your belief was the real thing and not a passing fancy, that you are in this for good and holding fast, and that's... It's unusual for us to say that, but there were some who lived, yeah, well, yeah, okay, maybe it was different. The first thing I did was place before you what you placed so emphatically before me, that the Messiah died for our sins, exactly as the scripture tells it, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day again. Exactly as the scripture says. 
that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later to more than 500 of his followers, all at the same time. And that's, this is now very cleverly putting all the evidence in line, because there were people at that time that said, uh-uh, he was buried. The whole thing about the resurrection is not true. He said, here is apostle saying, look, this one, his testimony, this one. And then a whole group, 500 people saw him as he had been raised from the dead. Uh, and that, uh, that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers. And later to more than 500 of his followers, all at the same time during the period of the resurrection. Most of them still around, although few have, said, have since died. So majority of the people are still living who witnessed his resurrection. That he then spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him. And that he finally presented himself alive to me. It was fitting that I bring up the rear. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle as you well know. That's really, he was really humble about this. Having spent all those early years trying my best to stem God's church right out of existence. But because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. And I'm not about to let his grace go to waste. Haven't I worked hard trying to do more than any of the others? Even then, my work didn't amount to all that much. It was God giving me the work to do. God giving me the energy to do it. So whether you heard it from me or from others, it's all the same. We spoke God's truth and you entrusted your lives. Now let me ask you something profound yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? If there is no resurrection, there is no living Christ. And face it, there is no resurrection for Christ. Everything we have told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you have staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God, all these affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ. Sheer fabrication, if there's no resurrection. So it's just conjecturing. The truth is Jesus was raised on the third day. But he says, if, if he was not raised, all of this stuff is useless. If corpses can, cannot be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they have already they are already in their graves. If all we got out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we are a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up. The first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. There's a nice 
symmetry in the death initially came by a man and resurrection from death came by a man. So Adam, the first Adam, and then Jesus. Everybody dies in Adam. Everybody comes alive in Christ. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first. Then those with him at his coming. The grand consummation when after crushing the opposition, he hands over his kingdom to God the Father. Bonnie described as the keys of hell and death. He won't let up until the last enemy is down. And the very last enemy is death. As the psalmist said, he laid them low, one and all. He walked all over them. When scripture says that he walked all over them, it's obvious that he couldn't at the same time be walked on. When everything and everyone is finally under God's rule, the son will step down, taking his place with everyone else, showing that God's rule is absolutely comprehensive, a perfect ending. Why do you think people offered themselves to be baptized for those already in the grave? If there's no chance of resurrection for a corpse, if God's power stops at the cemetery gates, why do we keep doing that? that so things that suggest he's going to clean the place out someday, pulling everyone up on their feet alive? Why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I look death in the face practically every day I live. Do you think I'd do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah Jesus? So he goes on. This is one of the key scriptures that says all of this, if he is not raised, this is useless. I'm just, this is, but we, it's not, this message is the truest thing. Your life, you can put guarantee the resurrection as he was raised the, our theology totally changes we are believers in the lord jesus christ and heaven is our eternal home praise god amen he rose from the dead and uh, and remember that's also the eyewitness testimony of a man who saw who met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that's why Paul calls himself, an, you know, being born out of time because he was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord of glory in person. But he was, you know, sort of projecting back to being, having, the not having been one of those ones, one of those mortal first apostles. Of course, he was in their fellowship. He was in the fellowship and in conversation and relationship with the eyewitnesses, with Peter and John. And, uh, but, but Paul, his encounter with this resurrected one was on the road to Damascus. And lastly, and we'll conclude here, but I was fascinated by really a great story. It was in the early part of the last century, in, in around 1920, that one of the big spokesmen for the communists, for Lenin and all the others, uh, was a man named Nikolai Bukharin. And he was a very smart fellow. He was a Theolo not a theologian, but he was specialized in arguing about Jesus, about the church, the existence. He said it was all nonsense. 
And that, but he was so brilliant and such a great communicator. He would be, he was sponsored by the Communist Party to go places and speak. And multiple thousands that would gather together to listen to his speech. And he was at this, uh, uh, they rent, you know, they made room for him to go from Moscow to Kiev and give a big speech. And thousands and thousands had gathered to hear him. And so he gives a speech. And then he, I mean, and there was great cheering and all of that. And uh, he says, if there are any questions or comments, come on up. And he was daring people to oppose him. And this small priest came up. He was an Orthodox from the Orthodox Church. Little guy. And he just stood and said, looked around and said, Christ is risen. And everybody in the crowd stood up and said, He is risen indeed. And they kept on cheering. So we want to conclude with that. He is risen. You say, Amen. And your reply is, He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. Amen. Give Him a big clap offering. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So you have eternal life. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. And we're going to see all of them. Isn't that wonderful? That we're going to uh, see Finney and uh, Billy Graham even went home to be with the Lord. We're going to see him. John Wayne. John Wayne. And John Wayne, yes. (laughs) That's true. And my daddy. And yes, and your daddy who was wonderful like a sheriff. And uh, we are even going to see Rock Hudson who repented and received the Lord and the mighty confession. So, hallelujah. Amen. And your mother and all those remarks that you've made about her since. Amen. Amen. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. We have a running joke. Mahesh has an unusual sense of humor, as many of you know. And so he'll, from time to time, make these unusual quips about um, persons, including like Mother Teresa, perhaps. In fact, he uh, appeared in a healing line during one of our conferences with a draping cloth over his head, asking people if they wanted him or Mother Teresa to pray for them. So over the years, we believe that there is a growing line of women in heaven that are going to be waiting to speak to Mahesh about some of these comments. (laughs) And maybe slap me. (laughs) He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise God. Hallelujah. So the eternity, isn't it wonderful? Your eternity is being taken care of. You never have to worry about that because that's, that is the work of Jesus Christ. If it was Mike doing or any of you here, I don't know whether I could totally say we, we did it okay. But when Christ, we are depending on Christ. He is the perfect. He was totally humbled himself. And he arose from the dead. And leaves, leads captivity captive, it says. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. 
Thank you, Father. We hope you enjoyed this message. To order more great resources by Mahesh and Bonnie Chavda, visit us at chavdaministries.org. For a full catalog of our products, you can call us at 1-800-730-6264. God bless you.